and welcome to Teach With Your Hands, the podcast where we bring you the confidence, connections, and business understanding you need to teach the crafts you love. I'm Amy Costello. My guest today is an accomplished woodturner with work featured in dozens of exhibitions, collections, books, and magazines. Over the years, he's given more than 300 demonstrations at workshops, conferences, and symposia. During the past 20 years, he served in the leadership of the Utah Woodturning Symposium, the longest-running woodturning symposium in the world. For over 30 years, he's been a professor in the School of Technology at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, where he teaches woodworking and furniture design to prospective teachers and industrial designers. Kip Christensen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Amy. It's good to be part of it. Why don't you start by telling me more about yourself and some teachers who've had the most influence on your life? Okay. Well, as long as I can remember, actually, I've been interested in a couple of things. I've been interested in designing and making things, and I've been interested in teaching. And so I'm fortunate in that I do for a living what I like to do anyway. It seemed like whatever was my favorite subject at the time was what I was interested in teaching. And so in grade school, well, I particularly liked PE because I liked the sports. (laughs) Yeah, I like to play sports, and so I was interested in teaching PE. And then in junior high school, I started playing the trumpet, and my instructor was my band teacher, who was also a trumpet player, and he was one of my mentors in my woodworking, even though he wasn't a woodworker. And then I served as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and when I came back from that, I started looking into what it would take to be a seminary teacher. And at that time, what they had you do was choose a content area where you could get a teaching certificate and then get a seminary endorsement in addition to the teaching certificate. So I looked for a field where I could get certified to teach and uh, ended up in industrial education there at Brigham Young University because I had some interest in woodworking. After taking one class there, I, that's where I stayed. <laughs> the seminary goal was, was no longer there. I mean, I still had a soft place in my heart for it, but I had found where I needed to be and uh, never looked back after that. So I got a bachelor's degree in industrial education, took one semester off uh, to catch my breath, and then got a master's degree. Wow. Several years later, I got a Ph.D. from Colorado State. So that's, that's kind of a quick version of where I got from a kid to uh, after my graduate work. Did you teach at a middle or a high school in there? I didn't, actually. No, and so it was a non-typical route for me to end up teaching at BYU in the industrial education program. When I graduated with a master's, I applied for jobs at junior highs and high schools, and I also applied at a couple of universities and just ended up getting a job at Humboldt State. So you were talking about how your music lessons influenced your woodworking? Yes. Yeah, tell me about that. Actually, I remember my first couple of lessons that I had with Mr. Warner, my trumpet teacher, and I had visions of being able to play great music pretty quickly Yeah. and even improvise. You know, I had no clue what yeah. was ahead of me. <laughs> and, of course, very quickly learned that there was a lot more to it than I had expected and that uh, I first needed to learn how to play the chords or the scales, rather, for a trumpet. And so 
that's what he taught me is that if you can learn the fingering and how to control the muscles that you need to make the tones and read music, then you can play good music. And then after a while, then you can improvise. But most people can't improvise without first going through those, those steps. And I also learned as I was learning how to play some of the just the tunes that he had me play that if there was a section I was struggling with, he would break it down into a short phrase or maybe even just a measure or maybe even just a couple of notes that I'd play over and over and over until I could get the fingering right and everything right to make it happen. And I would add a little bit to it and add a little bit to it until I could play the whole phrase and then the, the whole song. And so what I learned from that is if you're trying to learn anything that has some muscle memory involved, you need to work on developing that muscle memory. Uh, in fact, most wood turners, when they're beginning to turn wood, they may have a lesson where they would be taught how to turn beads and coals. What I learned from Mr. Warner actually took it a step further than that, which is more efficient than turning beads and coals is turning half beads. <laughs> over and over, one half of a bead over yeah, and over and over, and the other half of the bead over and over and over yeah. until you can do those really without thinking about them and then combine them into a bead. So the bead and the coal stick, in my view at least, is jumping the gun a little bit. Um, oh, when you use that as your first assignment. When you use that as your first assignment, right, because it's really more efficient to learn how to make a bead cut without it being interrupted by going from left to right and left to right. Yeah. So, so that's yeah. that's what I learned from Mr. Warner, and it's been it's been a valuable lesson to me actually, and I've passed it on to a lot of people since. It sounded like at the beginning you wanted to be teaching people how to do woodworking or turning, but it seems like a lot of the focus of what you do now is teaching people how to teach other people how to do it. What is that side of it? Well, I think that's just a natural result of my interest that I've had for a long time in teaching. You know, I kind of mentioned that I've always been interested in teaching what my favorite school subject was at the time, and it kind of changed through the years. In my position there at BYU, we prepare teachers, and so, and I work with the student teachers. I Right now, I, I have for several years coordinated the arrangement of the student teachers with their mentor teachers out in the schools. And so I'm out in the schools working with the student teachers and associating with the mentors. And I see their facilities and the projects and the things that they do in their classes. And I've just noticed that there's quite a bit of need actually for basic turning projects and basic turning techniques and instruction for teachers that are out there to pass on to their kids. Mm -hmm. And in Utah, fortunately, we, we have good labs, good woodworking programs and facilities, and there's quite a bit of turning done, especially at the junior high and middle school, where they have a little manufacturing segment, which is part of a broader introduction to different careers. And quite often that will include some wood turning because the kids like it, and it's a good way for them to get introduced to the material and some of the machines involved in making something out of wood. So as I've gone out in the schools and I've seen them, I've developed several projects and procedure sheets and also DVDs and videos that have, to help beginning and intermediate turners uh, learn how to turn because it's, there's a fairly long learning curve. Yeah. 
So you've been making, because you talked about DVDs, you've been making instructional DVDs since before YouTube was invented. So how did that come about? Well, I have to think back, actually, because I'm not sure what originated that plan. It first came from a book. A friend of mine who's also a fellow Turner and a teacher, Rex Birmingham, we were asked by Guild of Master Craftsmen Publications out of England to write a book about turning pens. So we did that book, and then after that, it just seemed like a natural thing to have a video on it. And so while, while I was on the lathe, he was on the cameras, and while he was on the lathe, I was on the cameras, and we did voiceover. And then after that, we turned it over to someone who had some professional experience as far as really making it into a, you know, a nicer product. But So the, the content is good. I look back at them, and it's not Hollywood. Well. But, uh, <laughs> but the content on those DVDs is still really good, and they still sell fairly well. Wow. It's cool. been a while ago, too. Yeah. But the format, of course, has gone away from DVDs yeah. to streaming. Yeah. And uh, we haven't done it. Both of us have full-time jobs and families, and maybe when we retire, we've got a lot of good content that we can take over and put in a different format. Yeah. We just haven't taken the time to do it yet. Yeah. Let's talk some more about BYU's program. Tell me, for somebody who doesn't know what BYU's Technology and Engineering Studies program is designed to do. We prepare students to teach in the public schools sixth grade through 12th grade in the technical engineering and vocational type areas. And so it's actually really quite broad. The actually all of the classes in our program, the students do a lot of designing and making. We have three professors. One teaches primarily the graphic arts, multimedia, video production, photography. That's Dr. Jeff Wright. And then Dr. Shumway, Steve Shumway, teaches innovation as far as problem solving and electronics, robotics, pre-engineering, those types of classes. And then of the three, I'm kind of the maker guy. Uh, I teach the woodworking prototyping and I also teach furniture design. I also teach a class where students get some experience with uh, several different plastics processes and several different metals processes and then an introduction to a little manufacturing free enterprise uh, venture. It's a fun thing to teach and to see happen. Our students get certified through the state, but a lot of our students end up doing things outside of the public schools if, if they want to. And then we also have an emphasis where students can take our content areas, but not go into the teaching specialization, but prepare for an industry more professional position in a related field. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. Okay. How do you define success in one of your BYU classes? I, in answering that, I, I think I have to think about how I approached classes when I was a student. Grades were, were really my motivation. And while I think grades can be a good motivator, I think that they're quite a ways down the list as far as, as good motivators go. <laughs> yeah. what, what I tried to do as a student is I just tried to meet the teacher's objectives, but in a way that I was interested in, so that it was interesting and meaningful to me while meeting the objectives of the teacher. So that was my objective as a student, 
And, and I found that if I did that, I was successful in classes. I enjoyed them. And the grades were what I needed. They weren't perfect, but they were good. Mm -hmm. Students that are after grades as the primary motivation tend to learn how to play the game. Yeah. And as a result, they don't get the richest experience. So how does knowing that affect how you design your classes? That's a good question, and it, it definitely does. And one of the things that educators always need to think about is what their philosophy of education and learning and teaching is. And one of the cores of my philosophy of education is taken from a, a quote that, as far as I know, is traced back to a monk. They don't really know who said it. And the quote is that, in essentials, let there be unity. In non-essentials, liberty and in all things charity. And I think that's actually a really good philosophy of life and of relationships. But the way that applies to my philosophy of education is I always like teachers that gave the students some flexibility to meet their objectives. And so that's what I try to do. I have a framework and there are some essential objectives in there that I feel there needs to be unity on. Safety in the classes that I teach would be an example of that. But I also try to design them so that students can, within that framework, they can meet my objectives by designing and making something that they have real interest in. Yeah. So like in your beginning woodworking class, you'd have some options of different projects people could build, but if they wanted to do it themselves, they just had to include these joints and whatever it was beyond that was... Right. More open. Yeah, so in the beginning class, and safety, of course, is really important. And then there's fundamental joints that they need to know. There's fundamental processes they need to know. There's things that are fundamental relative to the materials. So those are built in as requirements, but the students can apply a list of joints and processes that I require in a variety of ways as far as the project. And that does make it more work to teach, especially a beginning class oh, yeah. that way, because the the pieces aren't cookie cutter and you have to be more flexible and uh, help the students get out of the corners they box themselves in and, and it does take more time but it's more rewarding for me and and I think particularly for the students and if I were to just give them a set of plans although they would do the same processes and same requirements it has a lot more meaning because it's their piece instead of my piece. Yeah yeah that makes sense. What are some challenges that you see new teachers face when they start teaching their first classes? Well, there's a lot of challenges. I think one of the big challenges and also one of the big opportunities right now is technology. I mean, in the woodworking classes, there's the CNC equipment that's available and that opens up things that we couldn't do without that. And that's something that I think is important to have involved. Then you've got, for example, the saw stop for safety on a table saw, which helps teachers sleep a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But students, because of the culture we have, the, the media culture that we have right now, most of a lot of them don't spend much time doing things or making things with their hand. They've got, if they've got spare time, they quite often will spend that with some type of technology. And so I've noticed a lot of difference in the students coming in at Brigham Young University, and I, I suppose this would be anywhere, really. Since I started teaching there back in 88, most of the students that came into our program, an industrial education program, already had a pretty good background in woodworking from their high school. 
But that's not the case anymore. The students we get into our program that are interested in teaching and interested in teaching in our content areas, uh, the minority would have had a class that was woodworking or even anything where they worked with materials and actually designed and made things with materials. And, and then to go further with the technology challenge, as I go out and observe student teachers, the technology is just a big distraction. So I think that's a challenge. And when they get home, probably most of them don't have equipment to work with. Yeah. And they've got technology to work with. And so as far as woodworking goes, I just think that there are some of those things that come in and make it so that students have had less experience. And unless they have a particular interest in it, they may miss out on it completely, where 20 or 30 years ago, it was a typical part of uh, junior high and high school curriculum. Yeah. You were talking about how a lot of them won't have woodworking equipment when they get home. Is that is it difficult to teach when you can't really give woodworking homework? Well, you have to have the facilities available for them. Yeah. Because, right, it's not something they can go and go to their computer and do. They can learn things, Yeah. obviously, but as far as actually doing the work. But uh, that's also one of the beauties of, of teaching. I, mean, I think of the different topics that I could teach as a teacher, and I can't think of anything that I would rather teach than something that allows, in fact, requires students to design and make things where they see the whole process from the conception in their mind sketches or whatever it might be, and then they make it, and they get this finished piece that, if it's done well, will they'll enjoy the rest of their life and will actually outlast them. That's very rewarding to be a part of a class, and there aren't very many classes now that students get that opportunity again, even at the college level. You know, there's not very many classes where they will work on a main project through the semester when they get done. It's something that could and should be become an heirloom in their family. Yeah, yeah, for real. Do you have any advice for someone who wants to become a career teacher? Well, yeah, it would be to follow their interests, take opportunities to learn from people that are very good at not only at whatever it is they're interested in teaching, but in teaching as well. And then as they observe people in any kind of a situation where, where there's teaching going on, that they not only pay attention to what's being taught, but how it's being taught. Uh, I think true educators are also looking at how the content is being delivered or how it's engaging the, the students. Mm-hmm. So as far as part-time jobs, I'd recommend they get something that's in their interest area. And so they can just further those skills and those interests and kind of kill two birds with one stone and make a little money, mm-hmm. but get them further down along their path of interest, which will prepare them better for whatever profession there is in that field. So if I, for example, wanted to become a woodworking teacher, you think I should spend as much time working in the woodworking field as I can before I actually start teaching it? Well, you need enough background to be able to teach the content. Yeah. But for someone who wants to teach in the public schools, I would recommend going to a good teacher preparation program, a university that has a good teacher preparation program. There are a lot of really good people that come from industry to teach some of the technical subjects in the high schools. Mm -hmm. And some of them end up being fantastic teachers and do very well. 
And I don't know the statistics on this, but I think that there's quite a high number that get there and they're just surprised by what it may take to manage a classroom. Yeah, because that's a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's and if you can't manage the classroom, then you can't you can't teach, really. And so, um, both aspects of that are important. My recommendation: if I had a son or daughter that came to me and said, "I'm interested in teaching whatever the content was," I would suggest that they get all the experience they can with that at whatever level they're at as they go through and that they go to a university that has a good, solid teacher preparation program in that field. Makes sense. You asked that question, and so, you know, I've talked to directors in the districts that hire teachers, Mm -hmm. and they will pretty much always tell you that they can get good people out of industry, but uh, it's pretty hit and miss, or it's much more consistent to get someone from a teacher preparation program. And I think another part of that is the students that go through a teacher preparation program have made a commitment to education early in their life. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're bright and they're capable and they can do other things that would probably be more profitable. And the fact that they've selected education shows a level of commitment there. And uh, so they've usually done what's needed to be well prepared to step into the classroom best they can right out of school. Yeah. And they've got things like doing student teaching under their belt and all that kind of stuff. So I know that a lot of people in different parts of the country are seeing shop classes disappearing. But from my impression, they're kind of all over the place still in Utah. How and why do you think that Utah is keeping these programs alive when other places aren't? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I think there's a good answer to it. Um, okay. And at least I like to think that a, a good share of that has to do with the teachers that we have produced from Brigham Young University over the years. Um, we've always had a strong program for preparing teachers to teach the traditional subjects, as well as the new technological subjects coming along. So we've tried to pick up the new technologies and include that into our curriculum, but we've also tried to maintain enough of the fundamentals of the traditional vocational programs that students that have interest in that can do that. We graduate students that go out and get jobs in schools. They build strong programs and strong programs have strong reputations that the community supports and the faculty supports, the administration supports, and I I think it's perpetuated that way. I think that's probably why Utah is is still strong in that way. Not only our graduates, but uh, Utah State has a program that's contributed a lot to that. I go out into the public schools and I go to conferences, state teaching conferences, and I see our students and they're very commonly presenting, presenting new curriculum, new techniques. They're leaders uh, in, in their subject areas in the state. And if you've got a good, strong program, those are more difficult for administrators to eliminate. Makes sense. So you think that it's the teachers that create the programs rather than the programs that generate teachers? Yes, absolutely. All right. Yeah. It's I've never the, thought of it that way. Now, you, you, if you go to different classrooms and uh, of the same, it might be beginning wood, you could look at a lot of different beginning woodworking programs, even that are using the same state objectives, 
and you'll see quite a bit of difference in the strength and interest of the program. And the, the one factor that is the main difference is the teacher. There's just got to be a lot of passion there. There's got to be a teacher's heart there and willing to, to work hard and have an interest in young people and their success and do what needs to do to, to help that happen. So if I was living in a part of the country where shop classes are in decline, do you see a way to turn that around besides just being an excellent teacher? <laughs> well, there's one of the reasons that shop classes are in decline is that there are fewer and fewer teacher preparation programs that prepare teachers to teach the vocational subjects in general. And, and I think that that's unfortunate. You know, while I've been at Brigham Young University and for the past while, while I've been the coordinator of our program, I get contacts from people in different states. These would be principals or teachers. The teacher might say, I'm going to be retiring in a couple of years and it's really important that this awesome program that I've built doesn't die and dwindle because they can't find someone to replace me and the administrators are usually calling for the same reason. And it's unfortunate because there are a lot of openings in the fields that we prepare students for, lots and lots of openings. And there are a lot that, that go unfilled or possibly filled with people who are not as strong as they could be in their preparation. And so that's one of the things that has contributed to the decline of shop programs in the schools is the number of teacher preparation programs that over the past 30 or 40 years have faded away. There are not that very many west of the Mississippi anymore. Yeah. And I don't know how you turn that around, actually. So in answer to your question, if I was living in a state somewhere and you're suggesting maybe that there isn't a woodworking yeah. program at the high school, what would Yeah, I if do? it's gone, yeah. Well, it would be, I'm not sure how I'd go about trying to get it in. But I think that there are ways that you can reach young people with woodworking, and that could be through a local club, which could be a wood turning club or a woodworking club or a carving club, and then reach out to youth groups to see if you could bring them in. And I know some clubs that are actually very good at doing that, they specifically seek that. And they have youth that are involved in their meetings every month and that have work that they're publishing and that they're getting out in front of people on the internet and mm -hmm. they're very involved but you know you just have to hand it to the people that are in charge of those organizations that do that because it takes more work but it's a challenge when there's a good program that can't find a replacement yeah so that even makes it more of a challenge to build a program from scratch oh yeah because you'll get stolen from across state lines i guess yeah, so I would, I would think if you're in a place where there is a good, strong woodworking program, for example, if, if you're a parent or you live in a community, do what you can to support it and get the word out and just help it be, continue to be positive so it will be continuing to be supported from the administration. Yeah. One of the things that's kind of sad to me as I look at things right now is I've, I've had a number of people who said, I would love to have your job, <laughs> you know, and I've always felt really, really fortunate. You know, I'm in my 31st year at BYU, but I've had several students over the last while say, what do I need to do to 
get a job like yours at a university teaching woodworking or teaching woodworking education? And that's not an easy question to answer because there aren't very many positions like mine that will come available. And there aren't many people out there that are like me that are ready to step into those positions. You know, when I'll be retiring fairly soon and we've got some students that, that I think could have been really good for stepping in and teaching the things that I teach and so forth. It would be very, very good, but they've just gone different directions. And so it'll be interesting to see what Steve and Jeff do when I retire. One thing will be interesting to see is if they want to try to keep the things that I've been doing going. And if they want to do that, there just aren't very many people out there that have the passion that I have for making things and the background that I've had in, in manufacturing and in making things that have a PhD. Yeah. That's you know, there's yeah. a lot of really good people out there yeah. with those things, but they're just... you got to do the academics with it. Yeah, they just are... I don't know of anybody that I could tell you that can yeah. step in and teach the classes that I teach that have a PhD. There's a lot of great people out there, but they don't have that combination. We've got fantastic students there, professors at other universities, and that would come in and be great tech ed faculty, and that's what I expect will kind of happen. But their passion isn't in my area. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see. Where can you get a PhD in woodworking these days? Well, it, you don't get a PhD in woodworking. Okay. So. You get it in like teaching design or something like that? You, you get it in education of some sort. Yeah. To, to qualify for, you know, my job, you would, you would get kind of like what I did, you know. Only the one thing that I could have done that would have been better would be to spend some time at a junior high and high school. And I didn't plan not, it just didn't work out that way. Yeah. You know, if someone had wanted to take over my position, this would, I would have had to have had this discussion with him about eight years ago. <laughs> but what I would have had them do is go through a program and be certified to teach and then go out and teach public school for at least two or three years and then get a bachelor's I mean, get a master's and a PhD, and in all of that time, keep their nose clean and have good recommendations and everything. And oh, yeah, because at BYU, you also have to have all the ecclesiastical stuff on top of the PhD. Yeah, but, you know, that's that's an eight-year program. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I have had some students that I was hoping to kind of coax that direction that would have been excellent, would have been very, very good. But one decided to become a dentist. Oh. <laughs> and so he's a dentist, and he's doing great as a dentist. And it's hard to argue with that, yeah. you know. And uh, you could have been that way if you had wanted to go that way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think you would have been great. And not that that opportunity isn't there somewhere, but... It's, it's an eight-year program. <laughs> an eight-year program, right. So. <laughs> so I think there are some people who have the view that shop classes aren't valuable in high schools because they don't necessarily lead directly to work like there aren't tons of woodworking jobs per se what is your response to that what do you think the value of shop classes are even when they don't lead directly to work yeah well i've always thought as long as i've been involved in woodworking education i've thought that particularly a good beginning woodworking class isn't vocational at all it's general education 
And I feel strongly about that, and I think that can easily be defended. And I think more and more it can be defended because, like I told you before, more and more we get students who have never had, they may not even know the difference between a Phillips screwdriver and a slot, yeah. or a sawhead screwdriver, Allen wrench, or, you know, yeah. simple things like that because they've never come across that. So I think it's even more important now as a general education type subject. Uh, or liberal arts education, I guess you could say it, that students get some experience with materials, with basic machines, and with, with doing a few things with their hands with those. Yeah. You also teach that manufacturing class, and I remember that I spent a lot of time thinking through that class about how things that I use every day are made because they're made with the same processes. And a lot of people are getting more and more removed from the things they use every day and knowing where they come from. So it's kind of, those can be valuable in that way too. Well, that, that's true. In fact, a good woodworking class, good fundamental woodworking class is very transferable as far as skills to a class that uses almost any kind of materials. Let's talk about the Utah Woodturning Symposium. Okay. So for people who don't know, tell me what it is, how it got started, and maybe how it's changed in the time that you've been involved. Okay, well, I, I feel really fortunate to have been associated with the Utah Woodturn Symposium as I have over the years. When I was a student at Brigham Young University, so we're talking back when the dinosaurs were on <laughs> the earth, uh, in 78, I think it was, that Dale Nash, who at the time was a, a internationally recognized woodturner, he held the first Utah Woodturning Symposium there at Birmingham University, and I was a student at the time. So I was able to be there for the first one and see it and be and participate actually as a teacher's assistant and get to know some of the professional turners and, and also the other participants that came in. Uh, the way that he got started doing that um, was he went to the symposium back in Philadelphia that was sponsored by Albert Lakoff, and who was well known in the woodturning field and participated in at least what I know was maybe the first symposium that was held. Now that particular symposium didn't end up having the longevity that the Utah Woodturning Symposium has had, but that's where Dale, I think, really got the idea and the inspiration to do that. And so he started it at BYU, and that was in 78, and it's been going since then. It, it is the longest-running woodturning symposium in the world. All that time, it's been very well-respected because one of the things that Dale wanted to do was get very good presenters from all over the world for people to come see, do what they do. But I started out helping as a TA. Dale coordinated it for 19 years. And then he retired and he turned it over to me and I was the director for nine years. And then I turned it over actually to Mike Mahoney. Um, after I stepped aside as the director, I've still served on the executive board. So I've been involved with it all along. And it's been a great experience. I've had many of the great woodturners from all around the world here in my home. I've got a lot of their work. We've been able to share work. and It's allowed me to travel and, and do some things that way as well. But I think mostly it's helped woodturners come together. The Utah Woodturning Symposium is kind of like a family reunion of the woodturning family. Yeah. 
And if you talk to people that have been to it over the years, they enjoy what they see and what they learn in the wood turning, but they also just enjoy the association with somebody who has a similar interest and they've come to know as friends. And there are people that have been back many, many times. The next one we have will be the 40th. We have one person that's been to all 39 previous symposiums. Uh-huh. But uh, it's really been uh, a great opportunity for me to be involved in that at the level that I've been able to. A lot of work, but very rewarding. Yeah. So the first one was small enough you could fit everybody inside of BYU's woodshop? Uh, yes. Yeah, in fact, I've got a picture of, the I think, the first one, and there's about, Dale is demonstrating, Dale Nurse is demonstrating a delay, and I think there's about 15 or 20 people gathered around the lathe. Yeah. And... Uh, that's kind of how it started. I think he had maybe three well-known presenters come in and 20 or so participants, and yeah. they had their symposium, and then it grew from there. Yeah, how big is it now? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I think last time we had around 400, is my guess, the people all together. The, the most we had at any one time was when we had the 25th anniversary, and I was coordinating at that time, and I put together, I worked with the Museum of Art on BYU campus, and with them we curated a museum of work from presenters for the first 25 years, and this was really a list of who's who in wood turning, the people that had been there during those first 25 years, and so it was a wonderful exhibition, and uh, we had, we invited all of the past presenters back, and I think that year there were a little over 700, but we were at BYU and we were kind of landlocked. Uh, we got to the point where we couldn't grow. In fact, we were really struggling to hold it in the space that we had. Mm-hmm. So we moved it away from BYU over to Utah Valley University. But it's not as, as big anymore as it has been in the past, and I think there are a number of factors. One is that there are a lot more regional symposiums around, yeah. and so people can find good woodturning symposiums without having to travel all the way to Utah if they live in, in remote parts of the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, a lot of people get information off the Internet, which has changed things. Yeah. Travel is more difficult than it used to be, and so there are a number of reasons. And it was never our objective to become large. Our objective was to be as good as we could to possibly be within the constraints that we had. Yeah. So I've heard rumors that the 40th one is going to be the last one. Is that true? Well, there's a possibility. Okay. Um, we, we don't know that yet. Okay. There are some, for some of the reasons that I've mentioned, it's becoming more of a challenge to have it viable financially, but um, that's yet to be determined. We're not going to have, have it this year. This is the first year we haven't had it for quite a while because we wanted to make sure that the 40th, which is a special anniversary of it, is, is a big event. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, it's, I'm not sure. That's, like I say, that's still to be determined. It is a possibility that it could be the last one, or at least the last one that maybe would be every year. Yeah. Uh, but we, we don't know for sure. But it sounds like you think that there's still a demand for places where people can gather and learn. It's just becoming more small and regional. Yes, there, there is. Plus, the American Association of Woodturners has continued to grow, and they have clubs all over the country. Mm-hmm. Utah has five, I believe, and they typically meet once a month, and they have presenters in. Sometimes they will get 
professional or well-known presenters from other places that will come in and give the demonstrations. But there's some really good things happening in the local clubs. And so that's helping also to get the information out, which uh, wasn't happening back in the early days. Uh, the AEW Symposium is a wonderful event. There's just a lot of great things there. And I'm not sure how long it's been going. I should be able to tell you that. I'm thinking it's around 30 years approximately. So the Utah one was going for a while before the AEW one was out. But the AEW is a national organization and it spreads out and has really strong positive impact all across the country. Yeah, they do their symposium in a different place every year. They do, yeah. they do, and that'll be interesting to see if that maintains that. I don't know. That that's, As someone who's conducted symposiums, that would be a hard thing to do, to do it in a different place every year because you have a different venue, and that brings yeah. challenges that you have to work through. I would, I've been glad that we've been able to have a venue from year to year where there's consistency in the yeah. health and the facilities, and we know what we're up against. And so that's... That's a challenge to do that, but I appreciate the AAW a lot because there's a lot of interest in turning. It's exploded over the last 20 or 30 years, and I can tell you a little bit about what it was like when I first started. It was a different world, really, in wood turning, and so the AAW is filling a vacuum that has been there, and they're doing a good job of getting the information out and having good quality opportunities for people to not have to travel very far, but to connect with turners and to get good instruction as they learn how to turn. What kind of challenges are there with organizing that many people? Well, you know, any kind of event like that, you've got the logistics of getting the word out and collecting the money and getting the facility ready. But I think for the wood turning symposium, one of the biggest parts is the facility because it's not it's not a symposium where people come in and there's PowerPoint presentations in every room or, or whiteboard discussions or panel discussions or whatever. You know, our demonstration areas would have a lathe and a grinder and uh, video equipment and a screen so people could see well, and uh, so that was always a challenge to move that equipment in and out and to have everything that the different presenters had requested as far as accessories and wood to do the things that they do in their home. Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest challenges of, of that type of symposium in comparison to other symposiums. The format of our symposium, and actually most symposiums around the world, because I've been to some in other countries and I know a lot of them, I've been to a lot of them here in the United States, they follow very much the same format, which really was a pattern that was set by that initial symposium that Dale went to back in, in Philadelphia. And that's because people like to see good turners doing what they do the way they would do them in their own home shop. And so that's generally what we try to do. We try to get the tools and accessories and materials that they like to work with to do the things that they're known for. Mm-hmm. But and, we're, and we've looked at some of this for the Utah Woodland Symposium. In fact, we've started to do some of it. I, I just think that I will include some of the modern technology and, and maybe do live webcasts or mm. uh, some streaming or have things that people could access another way if they couldn't get there. Yeah. And, uh, but in order to do those things, um, generally, unless you've got a lot of money that's donated uh, or time that's donated, there has to be some funds to support that. Yeah. 
So I think that there's a lot that can be done with you know, web technology that would just get it out to a larger group of people. But that's still not that's still never the same as sitting in a classroom and watching the shavings fly and smelling the wood and feeling the rumble of the equipment and talking to your friends that are next to you and building relationships. So the web is a good way to get information out, but it's not like being there. Cool. So why don't you tell me where people can learn from you? Well, in the videos that Rex and I have done okay. is one way. Well, on a regular basis, I'll be invited to different symposiums uh, around the country, and occasionally I'll do workshops in different places. So it kind of depends on the year. And because of my full-time job at BYU, I haven't done nearly as much traveling as I could have done. I've turned down a lot of opportunities to travel because I've tried to make it a real point to not miss classes. So most of the traveling that I do is during the summer. This year I'm doing a week at Mark Adams, okay. a weekend of Saturday, and I'll be at the AW in Raleigh. And that's so the videos that we do and then the times when I'm teaching the workshops or symposium, which are typically fairly well advertised yeah. from those events is probably the best way to learn from me. Perhaps down the road I'll do something here at home in my shop, I'm not sure. Alright. Sounds good. Thanks for being on my show. Well, thank you for having me. If you like this episode, you can visit us on iTunes and give us a rating. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at TWYH Podcast. Just a reminder that you can find us on Patreon. This month we've got the unedited Bruce Daynert interview up, as well as an extended cut of this episode, which includes a lot of really interesting stories about what turning in the U.S. was like before things like fine woodworking and the AAW hit the scene. All that and more at patreon.com slash T-W-Y-H. Teach With Your Hands is produced by Amy Costello. The music is Admin by Poddington Bear. Hear more at soundofpicture.com. Wow, mommy. Yeah.